Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. And I'm Mary Donahue, assistant publisher of Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. In today's episode, Natalie Belanger of the Connecticut Historical Society dives into the life of Anne Plato, a teacher and essayist whose story shows both the limitations and the possibilities of life as a woman of color in early 19th century Connecticut. In 1819, a group of African Americans in Hartford formed the first Black congregational church in Connecticut. It was one of the first in the nation. Over the next decades, the church became a center of social and political activity for Hartford's Black community. Though small, this community boasted some extraordinary members. Possibly the best known is Reverend James Pennington, a minister, author, abolitionist, and the first Black man to study at Yale. Today, I'm taking a look at the life of another member of that congregation, the essayist and poet Anne Plato. I'm joined by Antoinette Brimbell, herself a poet, artist, and professor of English at Capital Community College. Professor Brimbell told me about Plato's difficult early life, the tenacity that resulted in her publishing a book while still in her teens, and the changing ways that succeeding generations of critics and historians have understood her work. To start off, can you tell us about how you first came to learn about Anne Plato? Well, you know, that's a great question because I had never known about her at all until Capital Community College received a grant from the National Endowment of the Humanities to begin to develop curriculum and exhibits and lecture series based on um, the history of the Talcott Street Church, which was the first Black house of worship in Hartford, right? So the, the name of the project is the Black Heritage Project, Empowering Students Through Black Community History. And so we started uh, kind of diving in and pulling out stories that came out of the church. And Anne Plato was one of the figures who had been uh, a member of the church. As a matter of fact, Reverend Pennington, who was the uh, head of the church, actually wrote a foreword for her book. So she wrote a book. She was the first African-American to have a collection of essays published in, uh, of course, you know, the United States. And so I was assigned to do some research on her. And that's how I came to know of Anne Plato. So she's a, she's the first African American to publish a collection of essays in the United States. So it's interesting to me that, you know, when I think of early African American authors, I think of Phyllis Wheatley. She's fairly well known. She gets covered in a lot of elementary and high school classes, but sounds like we should know about on an equal basis about Anne Plato, right? You would think that. Um, but there's a I think a couple of reasons why she was forgotten. One is because she only published one book. Um, and I think also because a lot of people were looking at her 
then and now as someone who was not entirely activist, right? It seems like a lot of criticism was leveled against her for for not being intensely anti-slavery or of not being this very, very, I'm looking for the word activist. Instead, her book she wrote for young Black women is about, you know, how to be a good and ladylike Black woman. And, um, and it very much was modeled after a book that was written by Lydia Sigourney at that particular time. And so I think a lot of people found her work to be derivative and not activist enough. And subsequently, she was just kind of dismissed. And that's very unfortunate. Well, tell us, I'd like to know why you think that's unfortunate. Um, But also just tell us, can you also tell us a little bit about or what's known about Anne's early life? What led her to become an author? She's a very interesting early life. It's a very painful one. Scholars, and there's not a whole lot written about her. She was part indigenous on her father's side and black on her mother's side. And this was problematic as she found herself a part of two cultures that were not entirely compatible and not entirely free at that particular time. She writes about her father's people being, you know, torn from their lands and pushed out and her father wanting to maintain his native heritage. And that meaning he would have to leave and go and follow his people. And she writes about her mother on being mostly unavailable to her emotionally, uh, a drunkard, a woman given to drink, and her being hired out at a very young age to be a, you know, house girl. So when we talk about early Anne Plato, this is a young woman whose life is just perilous. There's uh, a story that she writes somewhat allegorically and somewhat uh, from a distance that scholars believe actually is autobiographical um, that talks about being fired the the lady asking her to tell a lie, which seems, you know, uh, like a small innocuous lie, um, you know, tell the visitor at the door, I'm not home. And the young girl being so adamant that she's going to be a good Christian girl that she won't tell the lie. And so subsequently, you know, she gets fired and has no place to go. She can't go home to her mother. Her father is gone. And so she's wandering the streets crying until a woman discovers her, so to speak, and is in need of a house girl and hires her and takes her home. Um, So you can see this is a very, very precarious life. Um, This young woman, essentially orphan, um, having to rely on the kindness 
of strangers. So I kind of was taken by how she made so much out of so little. So when she's taken in by this new family, of course, she's working and living off of her resourcefulness. You know, she's a good employee. Um, The family decides, well, the family's daughter decides to educate her. So the young young girl in the family shares what she's learning uh, with Anne Plato. Now, I think that's really profound because there's a couple of things she could have done at that particular time. She could have just worked and remained in that household forever and not aspired to anything else. Instead, she really grasped this education and she went above and beyond it and read everything and every book she could get her hands on. In addition to doing her regular household duties and It ultimately educated herself tremendously to the point that she decided that she wanted to be a teacher herself and wrote and spoke and was knowledgeable enough that this aspiration could become a reality. And uh, that's what intrigues me so much about her. How tenacious do you have to be? that at approximately 10 years old, you're wandering around in the street, um, you're ultimately able to make a living for yourself, you're wise enough, you know, I don't want to say smart, She's that wisdom, that's something deep-seated. She was wise enough to know that education for her was going to be the answer to her very precarious life, you know, style. And And she went for it and she aspired to something more. And by 15, you know, 15, 16, she's writing a book. And then she's tenacious enough to go to this very well-known man and ask him to essentially, you know, endorse her and her writing. You have to have some guts to do that. Well, I was going to say the story you you told about her basically losing her job over not wanting to tell a white lie. That's an indication of an individual with a lot of integrity and just a lot of grit. <laughs> you know, um, probably ninety out of a ninety nine out of a hundred young people, when tasked with that, would have not thought twice. But she's that's a pretty clear early indication that she's not someone. She's someone who's going to do what she wants to do. <laughs> Right. You're right. I, I think that's a good indicator of her character, but also her personality. Yeah, she dug in. Yeah. <laughs> she spoke up and spoke back to the person, you know, who held her her life, so to speak, in her hands. Um, yeah. You know, there's a, a little bit of, I guess, divine providence in the fact that This kid's walking around crying and gets picked up by someone who seemingly was benevolent enough to hire her and offer a place for her to live, take her out of homelessness. Mm -hmm. And uh, who was okay with her daughter, you know, playing school teacher to, you know, this child and educating her. But like I said, 
she, I tell my students all the time, you know, I can throw a hundred dollar bill on the ground, but you still have to bend over and pick it up. Right. And so, yes, this, this education was offered to her, but she really dug in. She really bent over and picked it up. And I think that's one of the reasons that she was compelling to me. And I wanted to spend more and more time understanding and researching her situation and what circumstance she was was born into. I mean, I think if a 14, 15-year-old wrote a book today, we'd be really excited and happy about it. And they'd be on Good Morning America and all of that other kind of stuff. But if we're talking about a child that is Native and Black in a time where there was very little expectation of people who hailed from those particular cultures and who had probably looked around and didn't see other people imaging this, you know, not seeing herself imaged in this way. There were no other, you know, Black and Indigenous people writing essays and that type of thing to decide for herself. And sometimes I would have to to say, as I was researching, she's just a little pumpkin, you know? (laughs) This little pumpkin deciding, I'm gonna write this book and I'm going to write it for other uh, young black women. And these other young black women are going to read it. And they're going to avail themselves of this knowledge and lift themselves up into um, the middle class and know how to traverse this very desolate landscape that we have been brought into and do well for themselves. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of tenacity. Well, on that note, I mean, tell us a little bit about the book itself and what the essays are about. Um, so I'd like to get into the content a little bit, and then we can maybe talk about the some of the criticism of her book that would have come out later. So as I said, her book is modeled after Lydia Sigourney's two books, Letter to Young Ladies by a Lady and The Girl's Reading Book. She used those as templates. But I don't think it's just mere imitation. I think what she's doing is she's availing herself of the literary tradition of echo and illusion, where one book echoes echoes and alludes to another book, which creates this third space where readers and scholars, you know, can, can come and talk about confluences and contradictions. So Lydia Sigourney's book, was written for young women, young white women. And so subsequently, Plato sees a space and an opportunity for a similar book to be written for young Black women. Because you'd say, well, why doesn't one book serve the other? Well, we're talking about a time in history where people have different stations and different expectations. And so subsequently, and Plato, feels that, you know, there's kind of a hole there, right? And so she wants to improve upon this book in such a way that it becomes usable for young Black women. 
So it's about morals. It's about how you should employ yourself, how you should use your time. Sigourney's book talks about, you know, things from how to carry yourself in public, how to dress, um, what's expected of a lady. And, and Plato's talking about how to be a good Christian person, how not to waste your time, what to do when you are, are uh, bestowed with some type of benevolent act, kind of like what she was when she was offered an education, how to treat your parents, how to talk to elders, that type of thing. And then she has also some poems where she writes um, in the voice of her father as he tells about what is happening to the indigenous people. She writes beautiful little biographies about everyday people that are in her in her life or in her purview. She she's very preoccupied with death. And I think that one of the reasons she's so preoccupied with death is that um, as this very, very ultra strong um, Christian uh, woman, she sees that as the reward for everything that she and others like her will have to endure in this space and in this particular life. So I guess the question that's in my mind then is, you spoke a little bit earlier about her work being sort of forgotten because later readers perceived it as not being activist enough. And that seems primarily because she did not talk about slavery at length in her book. Is that fair? I think about her particular experience um, in life, right? And it sounds like this, this, her work was very tailored to her experiences and that of people like her, in which enslavement was not, I don't want to say unimportant, but it was not something she experienced directly. No, she was not enslaved. However, at that time in Connecticut, there were others who were enslaved. Um, and also the Congregational Church was a part of the Underground Railroad and worked with the Underground Railroad. And I think that she also wanted to use this book to showcase her intellectual abilities. So at this time, as I said before, the expectation of a woman of color wasn't very high. And she wanted to showcase that she could master elevated language. She could contextualize philosophical and religious text. You know, she could comprehend uh, complex ideas and postulates. She had to go against the prevailing wisdom of that particular time that said, you know, Blacks are an entirely separate race, separate and apart from white people, almost even separate and apart from humanity. Um, and one of the prevailing wisdoms of the time was, you know, that they would eventually become extinct because they were so incredibly, um, they had so many deficits. So I think we have to think about who she was writing for and why she was writing. Yes, the book was for young Black women. That was the intended audience. But I think 
you know, every writer is aware that they will have unintended audiences. And, you know, her book would be scrutinized also by the white gaze. And so it wouldn't serve her purpose to be necessarily demonstratively activist. She wants to be able to uh, be employed, right? She doesn't want to rile anybody's feathers. But I don't think that's necessarily not being activist enough. Some people change the dynamic and space of a room just by being in it. The fact that this young indigenous and black woman wrote a book, right, changes our expectations of what other young um, people of color can do. And when she talks about how to carry oneself, and she ties it to Christianity, which was the prevailing societal norm at that particular time. What she's also saying is this sacred text trumps all of your laws and all of um, your other customs, right? And she talks about anything that is not quote unquote, Christian being brutish and outside of the realm of Christianity, which kind of checks people who are less than humane and Christian to other Christians, which would also take in Black and Indigenous people. So I think she may not be overtly activist, but I think that she's very very activist in a more subdued and covert way. I think um, I think we have to give her credit for that. From looking around, looking at the landscape, and saying, "Okay, how am I going to survive in this?" And there is nothing more activist to me than educating someone. You know, I mean, I think that is that's that's the height of everything of pouring your knowledge and experience into another individual, it gives them a head start, right? Right. It's like whatever, it reminds me of the time that one of my um, graduate school professors gifted me his book. And he said to me, this is the culmination of 30, my 30 years in the classroom, and I give it to you. So then I'm reading that, right? And I'm standing on that 30 years of experience. And so I think educating and wanting to be an educator and wanting to educate Black and Indigenous people is, for lack of a better term, crazy activist. (laughs) I'll be back for more in a moment. Did you know that you can get our new e-newsletter, Connecticut Explored Inbox, by signing up at our website, ConnecticutExplored.org. You'll receive your bi-weekly newsletter from Connecticut Explored with the latest stories, the newest Grading the Nutmeg podcast, programs and exhibitions from our partners to see or watch this month, and more. Now back to my guest. I think also, too, when we look back at, as, as, as teachers of history, all right. It's so 
it seems to me it's so common to find certain groups in American history, even in the most well-meaning curricula and by the most well-meaning teachers, uh, boiled down to a few essential points. And so often the story of pre-emancipation African-Americans is enslavement is what is focused on. And I can see in that paradigm that someone like Ann Plato doesn't fit into that narrative, right? But to tell the a wider, as wide, you know, again, you're never going to get it all, but to tell a more complete story of the Black experience in America in the early 19th century, her story is very important, right? That you cannot, by if you're focusing on this one single issue, you're missing out on all of these other people because, Someone like Ann Plato has all of this other stuff going on in her life. I re- what I really like about you bringing raising up her story is that it reminds us that African Americans in the past um, are def- are not simply defined by enslavement. There is so much more going on in their lives. Yeah, you bring up a lot of good points. Um, I I think we have this you know trope in education. We talk about Frederick Doug, we talk about slavery, we talk about Frederick Douglass, we talk about Abraham Lincoln, we talk about Martin Luther King, and that's it. As if, you know, we just jumped from one person to the next. But there are a million different stories. And being black in America is not a monolith. There are a lot of ways to be black. There are a lot of ways that people tried to carve out a life for themselves in the midst of everything that was going on. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think we, we do a great disservice when we just, you know, hit what I guess people think are the, the, the hot spots or the high points or, or, or whatever. I, I think that happens a lot too, because we don't always think of African-American history as American history, but it is, you know, indigenous history is also American history. And for us to have a a true and complete picture of who we are, we have to lay all of these histories on top of each other and see how different groups are affected because our present rests somewhat uncomfortably on our past, right? And and if our future is going to be any better, um, we have got to ask ourselves, what ideas, what institutions, what laws have we brought forward with us into the present that we should have left in the past, right? And so I think Anne Plato is, is both inspiration, but I think she's also a cautionary tale. I mean, it, if we look at how incredibly precarious her life was, and we look and see there were no real safety nets built for her, and that she was tenacious enough to make a life for herself, how many other young people who had similar situations suffered and we never heard about them or from them and they just withered, you know, and 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 died out there alone in the world. And how many 
people are living a similar life now. Have we taken care of those institutions, ideologies, et cetera, um, that place young people at risk, right? You know, how how different are a lot of young people, how, how different is their experience than in Plato? And I would suggest to you that, you know, some of them find themselves in exactly the same spot. But is society rising up to meet them and to care for them and to uplift them? You know, and Plato says in her book that a country is only as strong as the education of its lesser citizens. And that's really something to think think about. So how are we doing with that all of these years later? I think that's a great question for us to ask ourselves. So Anne Plato wrote her book as a very young woman. What happened to her after that? Do we know about, and do we know about the contemporary reaction to her book? And what do we know about her later life? So the reception to her book at that time Let's just say that her, her book did not meet with a lot of critical praise. Seven years after its publication, the editor of the Knickerbocker, which is the New York monthly magazine, gave it like a really snarky kind of uh, review saying that he laughed about it um, and that it wasn't very original, that she had just kind of added some of her own thoughts to Lydia Sigourney's book. I think part of that had to do with the fact that she was a woman of color. And so it wasn't read as entirely thoroughly and critically as it could have been read. I do think, though, it probably helped her secure her teaching position, although we don't really know that. Um, we do know that she was ultimately admitted to teacher's uh, college or teacher's school and that she graduated and she went on and she did teach. So records confirm that she taught for three years and then it's later confirmed that she taught at the Elm Street School for another two years. And so it seems like she was able to actually fulfill her aspiration. But then after that, we don't hear her, hear from her again. We don't see her in census records. It's almost as if she kind of vanished. So some scholars think that perhaps she moved out of state or maybe she was uh, she succumbed to consumption. Um, however, there are some scholars who believe that a Miss Anne Plato um, that is seen in the Iowa census is our Anne Plato. What's quite interesting about that is that this woman is characterized as a foreign 
white woman and which leads people to believe that perhaps she was able to pass and um, that she remained unmarried and continued to teach, but as a white woman. We don't know much about that, but it's a very interesting prospect that she, and then some people would say, well, why, why would she do that? Well, it's a much more secure and protected class, right, to pass into. Not necessarily um, an easy life, but a more secure life. And that's what we, we think happened to Anne Plato. It's a bit of a mystery. I guess the question I have is given that her writing career seems to have been sort of one and done, and then you have this quiet afterlife, how did her book stay in the public consciousness enough to be something that is studied and written about today? I'm going to take a little issue with one and done because... Please do. (laughs) And the reason I'm going to do that is if the book was a part of a larger plan to rise out of homelessness, poverty, and despair, then it did exactly what it it intended to do. And so subsequently, that was just one more rung on the ladder. She did ultimately become further educated. She did ultimately become a teacher. And if we are to believe that she was able to move out of Hartford and reinvent herself into a more protected class, then that book is very, very important to her life story. And I think by virtue of it being the first book of essays written by an African-American woman, I think that's probably why, even though it wasn't given much credence or much critical acclaim by some people felt it was important enough uh, to be written about or to be preserved. I think we just looked at it wrong, right? I I think people looked at it and said, yeah, okay, it's one and done. She did that. She never did anything else, blah, 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 blah. But if we think of Anne Plato as a type of social engineer who looked around her, understood place, understood socioeconomics, and figured out a way to traverse that, that, you know, social landscape, then we, we think, wow, this is a brilliant individual. We have to remove our 21st century gaze um, from Anne Plato and her book. And I think we need to remove our expectations of what a Black writer is supposed to be. You know, every Black writer is not going to be Phyllis Wheatley, right? You know, every Black novelist doesn't have to be Toni Morrison. We have, you know, there are a lot of ways to be Black, a lot of ways to write Black, a lot of ways to, to make a life for oneself in a landscape that is less than hospitable. 
And I think it's telling too that your examples you used are also women because this this is also true for so much of women's history and women's artistic output that it's frequently been dismissed, possibly and often because of prejudice about what proper subjects for women can be. And, you know, when you hear a work by a woman dismissed as derivative as Plato's work was, that does send up red flags, again, about how much originality that the historical imagination um, allows them to have. So yes, it does. I think that makes absolute sense because everything you just said about her, that was what was in my mind was this happens to women in the past all the time. And it's, you know, with succeeding generations of historians and scholars can look back and find things in people who, you know, find things about a, a life like Anne Plato that we're reading her story in a different way than people might have 50 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, and because we we value different things. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If you want to learn more about the Hartford Heritage Project at Capital Community College, visit their website at capitalcc.edu or find the link in our show notes. Anne Plato's book, essay including biographies and miscellaneous pieces in prose and poetry, has been digitized by the New York Public Library and is available to read online. Want to know more about Connecticut's landmarks, museums, art, and history? Subscribe to Connecticut Explored in your mailbox or your inbox. And for a daily dose of history, visit Today in Connecticut History, produced by Connecticut State historian Walt Woodward at todayincthistory.com. This episode was produced by Natalie Belanger and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan. Please join us again for the next episode of Braiding the Nutmeg.